We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How to play some of the most uncertain team situations in the league. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his fantastic work at Rotovis. Sean was just reading a great write-up by you uh, on a zero RB team that you drafted over at Underdog. You mentioned that things sort of fell into place for you on that squad. It was a, a team that you really liked. That is a very fun team. Readers uh, of Rotoviz and, and those who haven't subscribed yet should go subscribe. Check that out. A lot of really great info on really the, the strategy and the structure of, of how to attack best ball in that one uh, and how to execute zero RB, which is one of the biggest questions that we get now. I think there's, you know, there's always the sort of bad faith contingent in the zero RB discussion, but there's a lot of people I think that are really interested in understanding how to like that believe in zero RB, but interested in how to successfully implement it. This was a really great tool for that. So definitely check that out today. We're going to be talking about one team from every division. We just kind of went through here before the show and picked one that we think is sort of the most interesting. We may not get to every division, but uh, certainly some, some of the most interesting teams in the league in terms of off-season movement. We've talked all uh, off-season on this show about how this year is going to be a little bit different because so many offenses look different. I'm just getting started with my projection, Sean. We talked about that a little bit on Tuesday. I've, I've started just a couple teams, but those are teams we're not even going to talk about today, but there are big questions on those teams. It's the Rams and the Cardinals, and it's just little things like how do the Rams, what are they going to do with you know not, no longer having Robert Woods, who they've used in their running game for so long, do they not run the ball at the receivers as much? That's something they've always led the league in. Do they spread that around? It's not going to be Allen Robinson. Is it Cooper Cup running the ball more? Is it, you know, Van Jefferson, Ben Skoranek, Tutu Atwell? Like, what? how does that part of their offense look? I've also done the Cardinals, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, they don't have Chase Edmonds anymore. Does that mean Rondell Moore's rushing rate is going to go up? So some wide receiver rushing questions in my first two uh, teams that I've looked at. You know, on that team, you have Marquise Brown, you have DeAndre Hopkins suspension. There's a lot of questions in Arizona, but we talk about them a lot. So we're going to talk about the 49ers when we get to the NFC West today. Another team with questions. It's it's an interesting offseason. A lot of stuff shifting 
and expect it to shift even still from from this point on, maybe more than we would expect from the middle of June to week one. So it'll be a fun show today as we kind of talk through some of those teams. Yeah, I'm excited to get into your projections as they come out. I had the opportunity to record with Mike Leone for Establish the Edge yesterday. That was a lot of fun. He mentioned that the two of you will have your projections series again. That will obviously be fantastic. You mentioned some of the teams here that are so interesting and so tricky. You mentioned Chase Edmonds and what that will do with the Cardinals. He also then factors into the team that we selected from the AFC East, and that is the Miami Dolphins. And the Dolphins are interesting in both the passing game and the running game. The big highlight headline addition is obviously Tyreek Hill and how that will work out with Jalen Waddell being another one of the fastest wide receivers in the NFL, the clearest cut second year massive explosion guy, you know, if we eliminate Chase because he's already become a superstar, how those two guys will work. And Tyreek Hill has been a quote machine for the Dolphins in the early going here. Still seems like he's got some hard feeling from the Chiefs trade. He's talked about how the Chiefs conspired to keep his receiving yardage down, which is kind of a hilarious note. He's mentioned that Tua is a, a more accurate deep ball thrower, which also kind of hilarious. I mean, Tua was very good at Alabama when he had guys getting wide open. And obviously the Miami Dolphins are going to try and create that environment again in Miami. The running backs, though, also very, very interesting. You mentioned Chase Edmonds. He is the most expensive in fantasy and should be, but there's uh, this real traffic jam kind of behind him and one of the things to start with is just simply how does Edmonds work in he's got this receiving profile that was very dynamic last season and he was one of the guys that I drafted on that zero RB team I was excited about it one of the things that I noted there was that there were only four running backs in the NFL last year who had both a higher route percentage and a higher percentage of yards per route run Right, All four of those guys are going in like the top 16 picks overall. The other thing that you have with Edmonds in terms of his ability to hit the hole, he tied for the lead in yards before contact last season. Now, a little bit of that is going to be how a back is used situationally. We know that James Conner took a lot of these short yardage runs where your expectation in that category is going to be much lower. But a lot of these guys who have this hybrid profile that is – tilted toward the receiving element they do have this explosiveness it does come out in a way that helps them get those yardage numbers up and he, he just seems like a very easy pick and yet i find myself still having trouble with it still a little bit skeptical because you have raheem mostert you have sony michelle michelle performed very well down the stretch last season you look at the contracts for these guys and it's clear that Edmonds is the sort of focal point but you also have Miles Gaskin in there too who has a little bit of overlap with him and especially if last year's struggle for Gaskin was a little bit more the offense than you know somehow his talent or skill level declining you could have some competition there so I think this running back group is difficult and one of the things that throws even another wrench into the works makes it very difficult to project is the fact that Raheem Mostert is a huge question mark from an injury perspective. The Dolphins appear to be saying that they're hoping that he can be ready for training camp. 
when we're in the situation right now and teams have players who could play a big role, but they don't know if they're going to be healthy when training camp starts up. I mean, that's a pretty big red flag. Yeah. The running back group there is very interesting and, and interesting in relation, obviously to their new head coach, Mike McDaniel and how his offense will look. We sort of have to expect to some degree that it's going to look like the San Francisco offense. You can get into some trouble just being like, Oh, it's going to be exactly like it. Who's the Debo in this offense. Who's the Kittle. Who's the, Brandon Ayuk, who, you know, how are the running backs going to be used exactly like San Francisco's used them? It's going to be different. There's different personnel there. But obviously, Mostert has some familiarity with the run schemes and the play calls and all of those things. That's definitely, you know, unquestionable. And so you would expect when healthy that he's going to be involved in some capacity, probably as a change of pace guy, because as you note, the health is a concern. Maybe he's only getting five touches a game. Who knows? And so Edmonds is really interesting in that regard. I'm with you. I, as you were talking through him, I, it, it feels a little bit like Singletary last year, and I guess even still this year, where it's this sort of uncertain backfield and also a little bit uncertain how much backfield production will be there. And yet he's the lead back and probably a good player. And so do we, how much do we question that at that price? You know, you're, you're probably, like you say, with the contract and everything, you're getting, even though it's uncertain what the role will be for Evans, you're going to get touches. Like there's, there's a, we, we often talk about not calling any running back touches guaranteed touches, but at his price, I'm very comfortable saying that, that Chase Edmonds is going to get enough work to have plenty of scenarios to pay off that price. You know, if healthy, he does seem like the guy, even though it's not clear how that will all split out, he does seem like the guy that does get work in almost every scenario at the same time. I mean, most and Michelle are even much cheaper and there are scenarios where those guys are 10 touch a game guys and reasonable zero RB targets late. And so I, I do, I think this is a really interesting backfield, but the one note you had on Edmonds specifically about how good of a receiver he's been, his routes and efficiency as a route runner on a per route basis being both strong and and putting him in a class where very few backs are better in both both cases on enough volume and more efficient on a per route basis is interesting in the context of this offense because the Niners didn't always throw to the backs a ton and uh, you know as I just said you get, get in trouble trying to say oh this guy's a new Debo but when you look at the personnel you look at Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle you have to think one of those guys is going to be involved around the line of scrimmage in some capacity, whether it's running the ball some or catching short passes or doing a lot in space that, that, that the Mike McDaniel offense will be designed in some way. You know, you think about what is the strength of this offense, it's those two speedsters, right? And so he's, what what would Mike, Mike, Mike McDaniel do? Well, I mean, I think if he's smart, he's going to try to recreate what they've done in San Francisco in terms of generating yak yards after the catch, getting players in space. That's been a, a, a staple of the San Francisco offense for years is, is yards after the catch for basically anyone. Getting these guys using movement and misdirection in the run game to then create opportunities in the pass game. So the, the, the pass volume for the running backs is a little bit of a concern. As good as Edmonds is as a pass catcher, is Tyreek Hill going to eat into that? Is Jalen Waddell going to eat into those short area targets? And you mentioned this yards after the catch element. Both of those guys went over 400 yards total after the catch last season. Obviously, that's on heavy volume. They had 158 and 133 targets, respectively. 
Waddle targeted around the line of scrimmage, just 7.5 yards down the field. Tyreek Hill just over 10, which speaks to the interesting nature of his profile because we know that he was actually targeted at and behind the line of scrimmage quite frequently, but also had a lot of those deep plays. Now, his racer last season, his ability to convert the air yards was only 0.76, which kind of gets back to this frustration that he had with how the Kansas City offense ran last year. But when you look at the share of the offenses, 27% for Tyreek Hill, 24% for Jalen Waddell. How are you projecting these guys? How how are you thinking about the projection for them early on? And do you think a third receiver like a Cedric Wilson will get involved? Or is it just going to be very concentrated on these top two, knowing that Mike Kosicki also is going to be involved? And so the way that I'm thinking about it, and I haven't done the projection yet, but when I do my projections, you know, basically anyone who does projections is doing them from the top down. You obviously, you're going to set the team level volume and those types of things first. But when I get to the player level and so, sort of start allocating volume and thinking through that, one of the big things that's been clear to me over the last several years of doing it and, and way, the way that I want to approach it is I want to look at who the best players in the offense are first and make sure that I'm allocating enough volume for them because teams aren't stupid. They're going to get the ball to the players that are very good. If you try too hard to be like, oh, I have to keep enough touches for the running backs or I have to keep enough touches for this position or that position, then you're like, oh, well, it doesn't work. Like you just said, Tyree kill 27%, Waddle 24%. Obviously, in different offenses, if you're trying to keep some certain number set aside for the wide receiver three and for the tight ends and for the running backs and all those things, you're not going to get anywhere close to those numbers for the top two receivers in Miami. But I want to start saying, I don't think they're going to, Combined for 50% target share, that's a lot for two receivers. But I do want to start with them being close to that. I'm probably going to have to regress both those numbers, but that's the part where I don't see a lot of scenarios where those two guys don't get a lot of work, force-fed work, you know, because they should, right? And then for me, it's a question of, okay, then what, how do I allocate the remaining stuff? How, who is the next most important player to the offense? I think Chase Edmonds comes in quick after that point and Mike Kosicki. And those are the two guys that I think Kosicki is a pretty clear number three in the offense. I don't know how that is going to look when I when I sit down and project and allocate stuff to Tyreek and Waddle and what is left for Kosicki, if it's more or less than he had last year. But I think he's pretty clearly the next guy. And Edmonds is pretty close to that. Then you have the other running backs do have to combine for a certain amount of rush volume because I'm you know excited about the Mike McDaniel offense or, or aware of the Mike McDaniel's offense. Maybe not excited about it, but there's going to be rush volume. And maybe Edmonds isn't the guy that gets a ton of that. So it's Michelle and it's Mostert and, and it's Edmonds some. And and then for me, yeah, Cedric Wilson is probably the pretty clear next receiving option. But I, I do think it's going to be concentrated pretty heavily on Tyreek and Waddle. And that's where I would start from a projection standpoint. And then Wilson, I would suspect in my projection, will wind up being squeezed because that's sort of how I expect their offense to go with like a 1A, 1B. And then Gesicki as the clear three. And then... Wilson is the clear four, if you will, of the non-running back receiving weapons, the, the best of the rest, right? But uh, a tier below Gasicki in my mind. And you mentioned Gasicki, and he's a wild card as well, especially from a fantasy perspective, I think very interesting because when you look at his numbers, and I'm looking at the stealing signals tool on the site, which we obviously branded after your amazing newsletter, it's fueled by the Sports Info Solutions number, so keep that in mind when you're listening through to some of these specifics his route percentage and targets per route are not up there with like the big five but they're in this very clear next tier that 
doesn't have necessarily a lot of guys. And you look at him and how he's performed from that perspective, it's kind of hard to match or understand within the context of his ADP. He looks like a very clear value, especially if this offense emerges, especially if he becomes the sort of George Kittle light type of player. And yet we do have some questions, I think, about his talent, but some of those may simply be that he flukily only scored two touchdowns last year. Are, are we seeing a guy here who is undervalued because he just didn't score enough points and that obviously leaves a sour taste in the mouth? Or is it a situation where, I mean, Tyreek Hill really caps his upside. He no longer has the chance to be this like elite number two. I think the clear undercurrent is that if, if either Tyreek Hill or Jalen Waddle misses some time, number one, the other of them becomes the focal point of the offense based on the way that I, I just described it based on my reading of the offense. The other, if, if Waddle's out, Tyreek is the focal point in those games. If Tyreek's out Waddle. And then that also creates a lot of contingency value in Gasicki. So when you ask about, you know, does Tyreek squeeze him too much and, and is there not enough volume in the offense? That's the way I think some people will look at a projection for this team. I always like it when I feel pretty comfortable that that player is above the additional options in the offense. Maybe I'm not super comfortable that he's like clearly ahead of Cedric Wilson in the case of a Tyree killer Waddle injury, but I think he's, he's definitely either on par with him or ahead. And then there's not really anyone else that I would be concerned about. And so yes, on a, from a projection standpoint, Kasiki's numbers may not look amazing, but that contingent value, I think makes him a clear target for the reasons that you asked. If either of those top two receivers misses time, Kasiki's going to step into a pretty big role probably. And then even if they don't, they're going to attract a lot of attention. And there's this there's that other element where like a projection might not show what you just described. If the offense takes off a little bit, Kasiki's going to come along as the third option. Again, in the in the reading of the offense that I have, that that makes him a target. Like you want the third option in an offense that has potential to move forward. Or if one of the top two guys misses some time, then he has this contingent value. Feels like a small miss, big hit type of play. Absolutely. And I like the way you put that. It's interesting because we did pick the under for the Dolphins in our previous show, looking at how the teams are being projected in terms of total wins. But in fantasy, all of these guys have prices that feel like there's some upside there. Because with Tyreek Hill, you're getting him late in the second round when he's a first-round talent type of player. If he is able to carry things over to the Dolphins, and like you said, if there are any injuries then you can easily have that first round type of production. Jalen Waddle going at the end of the third. He has this second year leap potential and is priced in a way where there's this exploitable element where especially if you think Waddle's going to be the number one, then I mean you can get him at a full round discount for that if you're sort of 50-50 on how these players work out. And then Gasicki and then Edmonds in both of those cases, again, we're getting very good prices on the potential for them to emerge and be the guys that they have been the uncertainty is keeping those guys down a little bit I'm not necessarily suggesting you want to have huge exposure i don't have huge exposure but the, the those four individual players very interesting and then michelle in the last round also yeah i think you put that really well the uncertainty definitely creates opportunity but also maybe not guys we want a huge exposure to the team the next team on our list we looked at the the afc west next as we were kind of going through the divisions we might just bounce around a little bit and there's a lot of interesting 
storylines in the AFC West. You can make a case for all four teams pretty easily. But as you said to me before the show, kind of a no-brainer, even within that context, is the Broncos, where they have a ton of weapons. They no longer have Noah Fan at tight end, but they drafted new tight ends, and so now they have two tight ends. Some of the early talk is suggesting that the rookie Greg Dulcich might be even playing ahead of Albert Alberto, who we like. You have Jerry Judy coming back from uh, an injury marred campaign. Cortland Sutton came back from injury last year and was very good when Judy was off the field and then very poor when Judy was on the field, which was really odd, frankly, because you look at them as you know seeing targets in different areas of the field. But Sutton's volume was very heavily correlated with whether or not Judy was on the field, whether that's a you know a causation element or not is you know to be determined there's a lot of people that are are pointing at it like it is causative like judy's presence was why sutton didn't get volume i'm basically throwing that split out i'm curious your thoughts on that but especially with a different quarterback i don't think i want to put too much weight on those small samples from last year and then obviously we have tim patrick and then more importantly we have kj hamler the guy that we love to take in every draft there's a lot of options in this offense and now a new quarterback in Russell Wilson, who uh, uh, maybe another reason to throw out those Sutton splits, the 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 word early in camp is that Sutton might be his favorite. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that the relationship between Sutton and Judy is necessarily problematic. One of the things that we witnessed was that in 2020, when Sutton was out, Judy was targeted a lot more deep. He has 113 targets as a rookie. He goes over 1,500 air yards. 13.5 is the A dot. Then you go to last season and that collapses to just around nine. Whereas Cortland Sutton targeted over 15 yards down the field has a terrible racer as he struggles to really connect on any of those passes from either Drew Locke or Teddy Bridgewater there. We would expect that if he can keep that target profile in any way similar that with Russell Wilson pulling the trigger that a big season is potentially on the horizon. But there are some potential hiccups because depending on how the new coaching staff decides to run the offense, you could have more overlap, right? You could have Judy targeted a little bit more down the field. Patrick, I think, is that guy who he's a big body. He's going to be a little bit of red zone threat. In some ways, his numbers are propped up by the fact that he led this team in touchdown receptions last season, but also his usage probably will be propped up by the contract that he signed when the reality for them is probably that Hamler should be on the field. Now, Hamler and Dulcich have been the focal point of a huge number of puff pieces coming out of Denver that gets you, you know, kind of excited about them, even if you know those are puff pieces. But they've been raving about Hamler's recovery, all the work that he's done, how explosive he is, how great a fit he will be with Russell Wilson, how he could be the Tyler Lockett in this offense. The reason that we picked the Broncos from this division that has four very interesting teams is that it's hard to see how all of these guys really can get out there on the field and get enough routes to even if they are efficient be someone that in redraft for example you would feel comfortable starting because i think that we're going to have the three or four game eruptions from hamler you look at his 10 targets last season targeted an average of 20 yards down the field his uh 7.4 yards per target 
not great, but hilarious within the context. Of, I mean, with 10 targets, obviously, it doesn't matter. But he he drops Drop that then, TD. like a 70-yard touchdown or what have you. That would have changed his numbers pretty significantly. You would have like 12 yards per target with that one play on his, two, on his 10 target sample. So we have all of that in the mix. And then, Ben, I think that there's going to be more pressure from the tight ends as well. Albert O last season has a targets per route and yards per route profile that is identical to Travis Kelsey. The big difference, obviously, is that Travis Kelsey's route percentage is 78%. Albert O's was 35%. And then you look at that and say, well, now he's unleashed. And yeah, maybe you don't maintain those numbers when you're running 75% of the routes instead of 35% of the routes, but your quarterback upgrade is huge. How can you not maintain a lot of it when you're having the change from Teddy Bridgewater to Russell Wilson? That should make you a star. Except the coaching staff already seems to be in love with Dulcich. I mean, he's potentially going to be in an equal share or the leader. And when you combine that with the enthusiasm that Patrick Corain has had about <laughs> him, that I mean, those are the two things I need to know, right? Do the, do the coaches love him and does Pat look? So then you say, well, I just, I don't know how to play this now it's been great because it really has neutralized Albert O's ADP. I mean, you're getting him almost for free. So I think you still have to make that bet. Even if Tulsich goes in there and, and gets a lot of the routes, I mean, is, is he going to be the relatively unique rookie tight end who actually is, is viable in fantasy? I mean, that seems like a stretch, especially within the context of all these other guys, but I mean, this could be tricky. I mean, this could be one where it really is more split than drafters are reflecting there's a lot of risk obviously with judy even though he seems like the guy with also the most upside by far but Cortland sutton maybe he does have a couple year stretch here where he can be you know almost like a second round value and if if that were to happen i mean you're still getting a great discount so many players and that's before talking about javante williams trying to hold off this push that melvin gordon says he's going to make but then we also have again, the contingency-based argument in this offense, right? And so, I mean, maybe that'll be a theme of today's show, but that's, I think, the big argument for taking KJ Hamler shots late is if there were, I think it can be any of the top three receivers missing time. And we saw Judy miss time last year. We saw Sutton miss time the year before. Obviously, we don't expect, like, you know, necessarily those injuries to to linger or them to be more injury-prone, but just as an example, obviously, uh, of what can happen, and and Tim Patrick could also miss time. It seems, again, similar to the Dolphins' point, that KJ Hamler is the the very clear next man up, and the puff pieces in camp and everything suggest that. He is a part of a, a four-man group, at least from an outsider's perspective, that make up the top of their receiving group, and then everyone else is sort of behind that, you know. So that does create some contingency-based upside. Then you, but you also have to factor in the the two tight ends as you talked about. And the talk is that Dulcich is going to be potentially used more as an outside. I mean, this is something that our boy Pat Corain has has talked about that Dulcich and Alberto aren't even really necessarily similar tight ends. Alberto very much an inline tight end. Dulcich has been used as a stand-up tight end a lot on, on the outside and split out wide throughout college. So if he's heavily involved. It might be like a little bit like Kyle Pitts rookie season, and they might be used differently. And then you would you would see essentially two tight end packages. 
certainly Dulcich can kick inside too. And there's this possibility that he's more traditional tight end, but um, anytime there's two tight ends on the field, there's only two receivers on the field, unless there's not a running back on the field. And so it still squeezes things from that perspective, right? So this contingency upset, I was talking about a receiver, you know, yeah, you can break into three receiver sets, but maybe you need to also break into two receiver sets in this offense a decent amount because some of that contingency upside could be on Dulcich or on Alberto. So really the point I'm getting at is you kind of have six guys for four spots, and even if there is an injury, you might still have that squeezed element that you're talking about. It's challenging, and you, I mean, you like all of the individual profiles. I mean, the only one that I'm not really intrigued by is tim patrick he just sort of seems boring and yet the beats love to talk about tim patrick everyone that covers his team has positive things to say about tim patrick i don't really see a justification for taking tim patrick at his adp when kj hamler goes four or five rounds later usually or maybe it's three or four i'm not exactly sure but it's a couple of rounds and i think hamler's a better pick straight up because of the upside of, of the possibility that he's a difference maker for your roster in a way that I don't know there's a lot of scenarios for Patrick to be a huge difference maker. He could be a an accumulator, a decent wide receiver, but he's not going to probably be that big hit type player. Hamler has that profile. I mean, that's the guy that I just want to keep going back to and talk about. Two great seasons. He redshirted, but then his redshirt freshman and sophomore year were both fantastic at Penn State. Goes pro as an early declare after his redshirt sophomore year, after three years, what we like to see. Goes in the second round of the same draft where Judy went in the first. And yes, like the draft capital in the first is a lot more than the second. But because they went to the same team in the same draft, I don't think people remember that Hamler was a second round pick in his own right, viewed very favorably. You know, we have new coaching staff. We have all of those elements as well. But the puff pieces and all of that stuff that's coming out, like this is still a player that objectively on his own merits as a, a former second round pick who has been a little bit injured, still has upside scenarios and has cases to be made that he can be a very good NFL player and his college profile and all of that, the long view stuff suggests that. So that's a bet that at cost you like to make just with the uncertainty, right? But the cost for the stars is, is definitely getting up there. I'm with you where it's tough. And I mean, I, I love the idea of, of Corlin Sutton with Russell William uh, Wilson as a, just a incredibly accurate deep passer and, and the, the impact that can be made just from the shift of, two pretty inaccurate deep passers or in the case of Bridgewater guy who doesn't even necessarily want to throw deep and, and Locke being a pretty wild deep passer, the impact of those guys to Wilson can just be massive on a guy with his profile, as you talked about, but the market is very aware of that. I mean, he's going incredibly high, much higher than last year, even though he didn't necessarily have a great year. He had stretches where when they were at full strength, he was sort of an afterthought in last year's offense. So I'd love to make that bet at a cheaper price, but it is, I mean, it is problematic as you were describing with the number of good players in this offense and their current prices uh, to see you know, how they all hit. And I don't know, how are you playing it? I, I, Hamler's the clear and easy one, I think, but I don't really have, and I think Dulcich makes sense at the very end of drafts at this point with the puff pieces as well. And you can get these cheap options that, that have good profiles on their own merits, even though, there's some uncertainty ahead of them. There's contingency value. There's reasons to be in on this offense. We talk about the haves and have not offenses all the time. This is a have offense. This is an offense you want pieces of. It could be, you know, the explosing explosive offense of, of 2022. But the ones that are pricier, Alberto is a little bit pricier in that mid, you know, tight end range. And certainly Sutton and Judy and Sutton in particular has really gotten priced up. How are they targets? How are you playing them? 
I think you have to kind of play this Gronkowski and Hernandez potential at the tight end position and be nervous about how that could squeeze out the third and fourth receivers. Tim Patrick is somebody I'm rooting really hard for. In reality, you have a player who was not expected to be what he is. He's, you know, big bodies, a good red zone threat. He does a lot of things potentially for the team. Probably not a great fantasy option. And even though he is a lot less expensive than Sutton and Judy, you don't have the contingency based upside that I think makes that a solid pick. There are a lot of good players going still in that range. And structurally, you need to make a solid pick in that range. You only get the 18 picks or the 20 picks, depending on the format that you're playing. I don't think that you can use one there on Patrick. We'll be looking at this offense very differently at midseason. We know who is healthy, who's hurt. The opportunity for Hamler to emerge is pretty exciting. It's really the perfect situation now. He has the ideal quarterback for his skill set. We'll see if he can stay healthy. I mean, you got the impression that the previous coaching staff had soured him just slightly because there had been a few little drop issues in addition to you know the the huge high profile drop early on in last season i think a little bit of the fresh start with a new qb and the new coaching staff again it just puts him in a position where if he does perform the way that we expect it's going to be hard for them to keep him off the field we always say that you want to bet on the talent even though the projections may create a value-based argument for passing on the guys you want to have some exposure i guess i do think that this offense could have so many players that it's going to be difficult even with an injury i mean you almost need multiple injuries for this to be cleaned up to the point where you're getting truly elite volume for the best players but if you're catching 67 yard touchdown passes which you will get from russell wilson you don't have to have that 27 28 target share so from that perspective again very intriguing offense definitely and and you mentioned the backs briefly i'm still very much in on javante williams as he continues to get cheaper um i wrote in, in ceiling signals right after gordon resigned that i expected for the rest of the offseason there to be a lot more talk about the 50 50 split in 2021 than the type of talk that i was that i was mentioning in that article which was essentially that i think with a new coaching staff and then the the evidence that, that the team gave us with their actions, that they weren't rushing to re-sign Gordon, they were letting him test the market and then kind of took him back late, that they were comfortable going for just with Javante and that there is this possibility, even if they start in a split and even with Javante's comments that he likes having Gordon back and they're going to be in a split in some of those things, that by week three, week five, they're already to a 60-40 towards Javante or 70-30. I think that's actually probably the most likely outcome based on the, the all of the evidence we have. And yet there's going to be a lot more emphasis placed on what happened in 2021 and gordon was good in 2021 and rightfully so like he should get that credit and yet i think based on what they did this offseason and the change in the coaching staff you have to look at the 2022 being potentially different like i said i mean it could very much be a 50 50 the whole year but i think we're going to shift towards more javante as the season goes there's a, multiple ways that could happen right gordon has not always been the picture of health he was last year uh very healthy he also could then this year not be as good as last year. He was good last year, but like the age cliff does come for everyone. He's a year older now. There's, I mean, like I said, a lot of ways that could happen. You want the ascending young player, the the 21 year old rookie last year going into his age 22 second season is just a, a profile of running back you want to target when he's been as productive, or you know, as as good on a sort of a per touch basis. We've talked about some of the advanced metrics. I know you've looked at some of the great info at Rotavism and shared with us on the show before about how good he was last year. So 
as he continues to slip now into the third round, I think he's just a really easy target personally. But last year, these two backs combined for 12 rushing touchdowns with a two to one edge for Gordon. We probably expect that to flip flop, but do you see the potential for a 20 rushing touchdown season for these guys? I mean, that's the thing when we focus so much on how explosive this passing offense could be, we focus so much on how many points they're going to need to score. We talked about that within the context of their schedule in the last episode. If these elite backs are delivered down inside the five repeatedly, maybe you don't project them for massive touchdown totals, but the potential to have this high-end season where the luck kind of runs hot in terms of where the ball goes down there inside the five and then the play calling the scores you have the huge touchdown season that in and of itself is very attractive as you're trying to make the playoffs you're trying to build this redraft team you're trying to feel comfortable playing javante williams but i'd also think from the perspective of tournaments that the potential for a three touchdown game in week 16 week 17 for either of the players but especially for williams that part of it is just tantalizing in terms of what it could do for you as you're trying to win the big money. I think that's a great point. And I've had a hard time understanding, you know, some of the enthusiasm for Gordon for a lot of the reasons I just said that I feel like he's clearly the, the you know, the, the one headed toward the smaller side of the, of the backfield. Maybe not clearly, but that it's very unlikely, I think, to see him lead a split with Javante Williams. There's not a lot of positive scenarios, but also, has been good throughout his career in, in the green zone and, and at, at converting touchdowns. So as you make that argument, I can see now a little bit of the case for Gordon as well at his price, even uh, as a guy who could have the three touchdown game as well. You mentioned it could be for either of them. It, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I think that's a positive for Williams. It's also a reason to be potentially in, into Melvin Gordon. I probably won't be in all honesty, but it wouldn't be surprising if he did still maintain a higher touchdown share as well. And so that could be part of it where, things go favorably for Gordon. Hopefully not for my, for my Javante Williams shares. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. As we move to the next team, Sean, we're running kind of long, so we're going to just do four AFC teams today and do four NFC teams for our next show. But in the AFC North, we highlighted the Steelers, another interesting division. We could have talked about the Ravens losing Marquise Brown, but that seems fairly straightforward, at least right now. And they may add somebody, but with Rashad Bateman kind of stepping up, uh, we talked a little bit about the Browns, obviously, are a really interesting team. Not really certain about anything with them. But the Steelers, you liked because of the way – one of the things that you mentioned was the way that George Pickens fits in. Obviously, we have Kenny Pickett, and we have Mitchell Trubisky, and we have a quarterback question as well. We know Najee Harris is the main running back. We no longer have Juju Smith-Schuster. We still have the Deontay Claypool 1-2 Pat Fryermuth making a step forward in year two is somebody that we really like. But I was really intrigued by your mention of Pickens as a reason that this is an offense that we're uncertain about. And it causes a little bit of extra drama because Juju Smith-Schuster was out last season, only finishes with the 28 targets. He really didn't siphon off any production from Deontay Johnson and Chase Claypool, which allows both of them to go over 100 targets for Johnson. You're looking at 172, right? And a 29% target share within that context, then any additional loss of opportunity for Claypool is going to be a difficult thing to make his value really fit. But these two quarterbacks, Ben, do you have thoughts on on who you prefer to start and how you think this season is going to transpire? One of the things that I've mentioned in selecting a lot of Deontay Johnson is that he fits well within builds. He's got this elite target profile and the quarterback play in the past several years has been very poor. The fact that Trubisky looks like he's going to be the starter, I think immediately is a red flag on Pickett as the selection which was controversial at the time and you know pick it in many ways one of the weaker prospects of that top five or so in this most recent draft yet he's the guy who goes first with Trubisky starting and we know how he failed with the Chicago Bears but then rehab so much of his value getting to play as the backup for the Buffalo Bills I think having a veteran QB in there probably reduces the potential for an early season just epic collapse for this Pittsburgh Steelers team. It takes away a little bit of the risk from Johnson. The picket just can't do anything at all. And so from that perspective, I think if you're drafting these receivers, you've got to be encouraged that you're going to get at least minimal competent QB play. And then if they do make the switch, it'll probably be at a time where it makes sense, where Pickett has demonstrated in practice that he can get the job done. Again, not necessarily at an elite level, but in a level that won't destroy these wide receivers. How much of the price that we're getting on someone like a Deontay Johnson and a Chase Claypool is QB? And how much of it is the fact that they've added in this receiver and Pickens? And Pickens goes in this kind of group of controversial players in that mid to late second round where you have some guys who seem like great prospects and some guys who seem like, you know, pretty big reaches Pickens because of the injuries you could almost look at either way, but he's someone who, if he does flash any of that ability from his freshman season at Georgia, I mean, you would expect him to be very heavily involved. 
Yeah, I, I've been thinking of it as if he is more of a concern for Claypool as, you know, this more sort of prototypical, I guess, vertical outside receiver. And Deontay Johnson, I mean, I, I'm with you. I mean, he's, I think, we talked about on the wide receiver show, I believe I mentioned on that show, that I, I, I feel like if there's a guy who has a profile similar to Cooper Cups in the fourth-ish round, it's probably Deontay Johnson where we've seen this really clear targets per route run upside. We have not seen the efficiency from him yet, but this potential for him to just become the really heavily targeted player, or he already has been the breakthrough for him would be having an efficient season after the target efficiency has not had good yards per target yet. You go look at his college profile. Every one of his uh, three college seasons, he had at least, or he was targeted on at least 26% of his routes, which is a very, very strong rate. Obviously, in college, any any NFL, good NFL player is going to have good numbers in college or the, the productive ones so that we we see really high rates sometimes. But this was, uh, you know, notable to me just in, in, the, in the regard that, look, he is losing Ben Roethlisberger, and there's some thought that, you know, Roethlisberger used to key into Agent, uh, Antonio Brown, and then he sort of saw Deontay Johnson as his new Antonio Brown was keying into him. And, and would that transfer over with a new quarterback? Is this strong target earning ability Deontay Johnson's or was it related to Roethlisberger? I think going back to his college profile and seeing that even in college, even as a true freshman on a hundred route sample, he was elite at, at earning volume is, is, you know, is a very positive note. And what's also interesting about his college profile is he did have one year where he was really efficient in terms of yards per target, a couple of years where he wasn't great either. And maybe he's just not, you know, fantastic. He, we know he has some drops issues, so he's not fantastic at converting catchable targets, even though he earns a ton of them. And maybe he's not fantastic after the catch. And, and we, you know, there's an, an A dot element here where he's not the deepest route runner. Um, but in college where he did have the one splash season, I mean, is again, these are college numbers, but it's just, you know, a fantastic year. He puts up this massive production line as a, as a junior, or maybe it was a redshirt sophomore, his third season. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think very interesting in, you know, in, in the, argument of who he is and what his you know ceiling could look like i think there are ways that he could be a pretty big hit when we know that he has this potential to earn so much volume like you said yeah that 170 plus targets last year there is the the the, the new quarterback situation and there is the quarterback uncertainty and I, it, it's an interesting question i mean as you asked me about the quarterback thing i was th- sort of thinking what what you kind of went into which is that trubisky probably limits the floor potential, but we know that some of Trubisky's offenses that he's led have, have had floors, right? They've been pretty poor at times and not had great passing attacks at times on a, at least on a weekly basis, regard, almost regardless of which quarterback is in, they are probably going to have to throw a decent amount. And so there, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a tricky team, but for me, it's a team where I do really like Deontay's price. I think he's priced down because of these quarterback questions. I think you're right that Roethlisberger was not very good last year. There, so there's sort of two layers to it. I think that the Trubisky-Pickett combination could actually be better than Roethlisberger, but drafters are treating it like it will be worse. But then there is the question of was Roethlisberger who he is and his willingness to get the ball out quick and throw short and target one, you know, elite number one receiver 
so heavily, which was a pretty long-standing trait of Ben Roethlisberger's, is that something that does make Deontay Johnson's profile specifically worse with different quarterbacks? And those are, I mean, those are tough questions. Those are questions that I, I wouldn't say I have a clear answer to, but I, I, I would say that I, at, at his current price, I definitely like the upside profile. And you mentioned the lack of efficiency from a yardage perspective from Johnson. That was also true for Pat Fryermuth, who was actually targeted on a higher percentage of his routes than Chase Claypool was, but generated quite a few less yards per route as he only averaged 6.3 yards per target. The interesting element for both of those guys, and this again kind of goes back to the comment about Ben Roethlisberger and how will the offense work in a season where he's not there. Maybe he did some things that even though he was struggling overall, he couldn't throw deep, he couldn't throw accurately. You do still have the mind there. We may lose that element with a couple of quarterbacks who don't have nearly that level of experience and haven't had that level of success. Deontay Johnson, eight touchdowns last season. Pat Fryermuth, seven. Johnson has been a subtly good touchdown scorer within the context of this guy who has been an underneath threat, who does, hasn't been that efficient with the yardage. There is a risk, I think, that we lose the touchdown element for these two players, and then they would have to make some real strides in the yardage efficiency to kind of bolster the rest of their profile. Now, Firemuth in that range where you would expect his routes to dramatically jump in year two to be more involved. So just the increase in volume for him can balance out a little bit of touchdown regression, but there are risks in Firemuth. Not expensive, not someone who is going to break the bank for you as you're putting your team together, but he's also not cheap. He is someone where a step forward is being anticipated. If he loses some of this touchdown success in a 2022 offense that has a lot of problems, and this offense could be very run heavy. I mean, that was one of the issues that I was looking at recently when talking about the NFL 10 of death, Deontay Johnson went very early. I liked that pick. And yet my concern would be that the Steelers, despite their lack of success passing, were a very pass heavy team they could try and rely more on Najee Harris. Now, the problem there is that Najee Harris is not the type of explosive back that is going to move the offense by himself. He's more someone who, at least in the past, at least as a rookie, was just sort of sucking up all of this volume that's there because you have to give the ball to somebody when you're not passing it. You have to dump the ball off when these other guys aren't open. It doesn't seem like a way that they could really make their offense work. I mean, this team isn't built in the way that a Patriots team was built to where they were successful being very run heavy. But I would think that if these quarterbacks struggle, there is going to be the temptation, especially if Harris takes a little bit of a step forward, there's going to be this temptation to, to run the ball. And then you maybe have a lot of problems with these receivers, especially with that element there with Pickens taking away a few of the targets. You look at last season in a neutral script, the Steelers were a 60% pass team. That puts them up toward the top in that category. They're among the league leaders, you know, seven or eight in terms of pass plays per 60 minutes. Are you nervous that they'll lose that element? Or do you feel like the Steelers are a quality organization? They understand you need to pass. They're going to want to win these games. This isn't a team or a unit that kind of capitulates in the face of struggling with the pass. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's concern. And then I think what you just said is interesting because the the talk all last offseason was they drafted Najee Harris so they could run the ball more last year. And there were a lot of people that were projecting the Steelers to be a lot run heavier last year. And they didn't capitulate, like you said. I mean, they they and even as Roethlisberger was bad, they're a team that is definitely willing when they get behind to have games where they throw 40 times, 50 times even. Maybe that won't be the case with Trubisky or Pickett as much as it was with Roethlisberger, and I think probably that won't be the case as much. And yet, even last year, even with their quarterback playing terribly, frankly, they showed that understanding that like you can't just run and win when you're down two touchdowns. And so there's concern about a shift overall, I think, um, but they're going to be bad enough. And, and I think when they are behind, I think they're going to have to throw that. Ultimately, it'll come out in the wash a little bit. But because of some of those concerns, because some of the concerns about their overall offense, if I can kind of just wrap up what we're saying, it seems to me like I, I'm not really into Claypool. It seems to me like you're sort of in agreement. We haven't mentioned him much. He's reasonably in, inexpensive, but I think in a tough spot amid all this offensive uncertainty and with Pickens, like we said, uh, potentially impacting him more, I think Deontay can make some sense. And I think we we do. You mentioned this as well. We like Fryermuth. Pickens is a reasonable late target. Probably not an offense we want to stack a ton, right? But like taking one of these guys in an individual draft is fine, you know, and having some exposure to all of them, but then not really being in on Claypool. Is that a a reasonable breakdown of how you'd be playing the, the Steelers? It is. And then the question would be, do you want a little bit of Harris in the second half of the first round to once you get in this area that frankly is not that appealing. Now there are some guys like Devonte Adams and Stefan Diggs who maybe you think are not necessarily underpriced, especially an underdog Diggs is quite expensive for what he actually did last season. We like him to bounce back at least slightly, but that is priced in at this point. If you're looking for a running back in that range, Harris led the NFL last year in total expected points at the running back position. He tied for Kamara for second on a per game basis. He played more games than Kamara, obviously, than Derrick Henry, who led the way. He has this run catch profile. One of the things here, too, would be this concern that we have some of the Elder QBs like a Roethlisberger, a Ryan, a Rivers, a Tom Brady, these guys who were actually very dynamic in throwing the ball to the running back. I don't know that we get that portion of the volume at quite the same level. I'm not projecting any type of, of steep drop-off, but there are probably some volume risks to Harris, specifically for the high-value touches, even if his overall touch load increases I have a couple of shares of him late in the first round, but I don't think I'll be adding any more. That's exactly what, where I was going to go with it is if I'm going to take a running back in the first round, I, I want him to be able to catch 80 passes or have 15 touchdown upside. I don't know that Harris, I mean, he's going to get enough of the work in the, in the green zone that he could score 15 touchdowns, but I don't know that this offense will really support enough scoring for him to have that type of breakthrough year. Think about like, you know, we talked about Joe Mixon having the big touchdown spike this past year and that being a big reason his game went to the next level. In the early part of his career playing on some bad Bengals teams, he never hit 10 touchdowns combined, rushing plus receiving. 
and up until last year. That was his first double-digit year. We talked about with Eckler how a big part of his season last year was the jump all the way up to 20 touchdowns, and he wasn't necessarily that big of a touchdown score prior. He was on a per uh, on a per touch basis. He's always been pretty good, but Harris, I think the overwhelming likelihood is that he doesn't have that type of, you know, especially 20 touchdown type of upside. Does he even have 15? I don't know. I mean, it feels like a really good touchdown season for him might be 12. And then the flip side, does he have 80 catch upside? And I don't know if he does either. And some of that comes to, you know, Trubisky's a, a little bit of a mobile quarterback as well. He can scramble a little, Pickett can scramble a little bit, but also having, you know, good short area targets in Deontay and Fryermuth. It's, it's possible. I mean, Najee has the profile. Again, he's going to play enough that he could catch a lot of balls. I just don't – like 80 catches is a lot of catches. I, I think he can catch 50 balls. But 50 balls and eight touchdowns doesn't really pay off the first round. I mean, it's not worth taking on that risk. And that, I think, is the more likely sort of scenario for Najee. And so when you can't see the, the strong upside on either sides of the high-value touch equation and the receiving or the scoring element of it, you know, you said you, you have a couple shares. I, I, I certainly, if you're if you're drafting a ton of best ball teams, you're drafting a huge portfolio. Getting a little bit makes sense. Uh, maybe if you're playing twenty redraft teams and you want to take them in one because you've been in, you know, you're drafting like us from the back third of the of the first round every single time, and you want to have one nausea team. I get it, but he's not a guy that I would be having you know twenty percent or more exposure to by any means. So that's sort of our breakdown of the Steelers. The last division in the AFC is the AFC South. Again, I mean, every every division has interesting teams. There's a lot of we have we have Matt Ryan joining the Colts. We have no AJ Brown in Tennessee, Traylon Burks, Robert Woods, a new crew there. The Texans are just the Texans, but the Jaguars are the team that we selected. They signed a bunch of guys at receiver for a lot of money. <laughs> Christian Kirk's probably more than just a guy. They are going to have uh, Travis Etienne back. He appears to be pretty close to full health and probably not James Robinson throughout the whole year. I, I heard him referred to as a, a late season hammer. I think you got to be really careful there. I don't think he should be drafted probably at this stage because we're talking about an Achilles. Yes, Cam Akers made a quick return last year, but he wasn't very explosive. And, and that Achilles was in December. It usually is a full year ailment. And so you're talking about you know, on the quicker end of the timeline, him getting back by November. And then is he explosive enough? Sean, you always talk about with the Achilles. It's often the second year back that we see the explosiveness return. So James Robinson's 2022 prospects, I think, are not being properly viewed right now. Just, I mean, he's going late, but still, I think, too early. Maybe he should go in the very last round, but I, I, I would have a hard time taking him in any round. I'm curious your thoughts on that. They also add Evan Ingram to this offense, and there's been a lot of talk, okay, Trevor Lawrence really liked to throw to his tight ends last year. I'm a little indifferent there as well. I mean, Evan Ingram has an interesting profile, but the types of tight ends he liked to throw to were like James O'Shaughnessy, and Dan Arnold's a little bit more athletic, but I think Evan Ingram's a different type of tight end than those guys. Those are kind of, you know, a lot of what he was doing with those guys was just sort of hitting them at low A dots, and that's been Evan Ingram's game throughout his career but he hasn't been great at that what what i think was going to potentially unlock evan ingram if that ever were going to happen was more downfield targets that's one of the things that we always kind of wanted the giants to do if he's still sort of playing that role underneath and you're hoping to get a ton of volume from him just because lawrence threw to tight ends a lot last season even though he's 
you know, potentially a, a slightly different tight end. I think that's a little bit questionable. He's not a guy that I really like as much as some of the people that I've talked to. So the question is, what does happen in this offense? I think we both really like ETN, who looks to be uh, in in line to be a, you know handle as much work as he can essentially handle. We've talked a little bit about how his receiving role could be strong. He's maybe the DeAndre Swift of last year. He's starting to get a lot of buzz, which is sort of a bummer for uh, those of us that aren't drafting a ton yet, like like myself. And I uh, was kind of hoping that he'd stick in that you know fourth round, fifth round range. But I'm starting to hear him talked about as a third round pick in some circles. But still, I, I think you'd want to have some exposure to him. The big question, I think, is can Lawrence take a step forward, right? Can this offense be more interesting with Doug Peterson? I, I don't care a ton about coaching changes in most scenarios, but I think we know enough about Urban Meyer last year to, to argue that things were it was just a really bad culture probably, and things were probably not running particularly well, and that didn't help their season last year. And so maybe Doug Peterson adds just a little bit of normalcy that is a be, you know beneficial to Lawrence in the whole offense. But then how do the receivers shake out? How does it work with Christian Kirk, Marvin Jones, Zay Jones, and then obviously LaVisca Chenault? And the first piece and the most crucial piece of the puzzle is going to be Trevor Lawrence, right? Neil Dutton wrote an article for us back early in the spring looking at his historical comps in the screener using the similarity search feature. And when you see names like Blake Bortles, Carson Wentz, Sam Bradford, that really reiterates for you what I think was clear to everyone, which is that Trevor Lawrence did not have a great rookie season. Now, other than Bradford, I wouldn't say that any of those guys came in anywhere close to Lawrence in terms of what the expectations were. And Lawrence, obviously, the even much higher expectations than Bradford, even as the number one pick for him. He demonstrated some things that were positives, willingness to get rid of the ball, willingness to throw the ball deep. Unfortunately, there were very few connections on any of those types of passes. And so you wonder how much is him, how much was the coaching staff. I don't know that it really helps him, the additions that they made. That's not a unique take at all. Obviously, I've mentioned in many cases that Christian Kirk actually had a very solid season last year and if he hadn't signed for so much, then it would be looked at differently, right? But when you do kind of go and look at some of these additions and what they did last year and why they would have been interesting to Jacksonville, it's somewhat surprising to go in and note that Marvin Jones was a 20% target share guy last year, LaVisca Chanel an 18% target share guy. Now he was extremely inefficient. You have the 100 targets, only 619 yards because he's only targeted 5.5 yards down the field. Obviously that's better than Rondell Moore or deeper than Rondell Moore. There are strengths and weaknesses to different target depth profiles, but that's underneath in a way that is not helpful to him. He plays poorly on top of that, drops passes, doesn't look like a player who can get deep. And he looks like a guy who's going to be the fourth player here. But then you look at Kirk, an 18% target share player despite the fact that they had injuries to DeAndre Hopkins right that's going to really open it up for you they didn't go to more they went to uh, some players who probably are, are borderline NFL guys even within that context Kirk only has what we would call a solid season not an elite season he finishes just below a thousand yards he scores the five touchdowns and he's a good player but he's not a difference making player I think the same thing can be said for Zay Jones who only has 
a 12% target share, despite the fact that the Raiders dealt with injury to Darren Waller. Obviously, you have the very unfortunate uh, scenario that plays out with Henry Ruggs. These guys are, are good players. I've always liked Zay Jones. I'm glad that he is stuck in the NFL after a very, very poor start. But I don't see how any of these players really make a difference for Lawrence. And I don't see how they necessarily demand targets in a way that even someone like a Marvin Jones, who I've never been on as a fantasy asset that you wanted to bet on, I'm not sure how they even necessarily take targets away from him. Do you have some enthusiasm for Lawrence within the context of these guys? Do you like the fact that he's going to at least have capable NFL wide receivers, if not elite wide receivers, that you're not basically throwing to Chenault and then special teams players? Or, or is this a situation where they just really have handcuffed their team? You mentioned Evan Ingram, a little bit of a wild card, but someone who hasn't caught the ball particularly well. And even with how bad the situation was with the Giants, I mean, you want to see guys who have this star potential to do more than he did. And I think he's going to take a step forward, but is that a step forward in a way that makes a difference? I mean, could the Jaguars be this team that is split, but also split in a way that the contingency-based outcomes are pretty limited in terms of upside? It's just there's not really a way to go. And the thing that you mentioned, I mean, Travis Etienne could lead this team in receptions. Right, and I think the other interesting thing is that most of the guys who, especially towards the end of the year, were the main part of this offense are back. You know, DJ Chark has gone, only played four games last year, but they do still have Jamal Agnew on the roster, who you mentioned as sort of this special teams player that steps into a somewhat high-profile receiving role last year, surprisingly. They still have Laquan Treadwell, who's another guy, you know, in this mix of former somewhat interesting prospects obviously was a former first round pick and, and similar to zay jones sort of similar to christian kirk obviously similar to lavisca chenault it's this group of guys that hasn't really done a lot at the nfl level kirk probably the most decorated of all of those but as you noted still some limits to what that actually is but treadwell's still there Agnew's still there at tight end dan arnold's still there so if Ingram isn't really, uh, you know, the the guy or clearly the guy, you do have Arnold, and that could be a pretty split tight end situation at receiver if Zay isn't, you know, playing particularly well. We could see Laquan Treadwell some this year, right? We could see, and that's a problem for Chenault as well. Like I don't think this is a situation similar to the Dolphins and the Broncos that we talked about earlier, where there's like this clear, you know teardrop in their wide receiver room after the, maybe the third or the fourth guy in Jacksonville, you have some guys that played last year and actually were some of their more productive players. Yes. It's a new coaching staff, but I've already seen like some positive stuff written about Jamal Agnew this off season, for example. And so I, those are not guys to target. What I think is interesting about those guys is that they probably provide a little bit more of a, like you were talking about, with Lawrence now having competent NFL receivers, they probably provide a little bit more of a floor of you. There's enough depth that somebody is going to be decent. And maybe Laquan Treadwell really does have the second act to his career. And he was doing, I mean, it's not like he was great last year. Let's be very clear about that. But if say Jones, isn't that guy, maybe Treadwell can be that guy. Right. Or if, you know, Kirk isn't playing particularly well, or Ingram's not playing well, that, that Jamal Agnew and Dan Arnold can reprise some of what they were doing last year 
there's at least enough options there that somebody could be reasonably good for Lawrence. Now, number one, who's going to get the routes and is it going to be the right players? And then number two, how do we play that from a skill position perspective? For me, it's like there's so much uncertainty in who's actually going to play. The contracts tell us a lot. I mean, you, you have to assume that Kirk and Zay Jones and Marvin Jones through his seniority, those guys are going to to get the first crack. I mean, you have to assume that. I think that's a reasonable assumption. But there's enough uncertainty about the way that the routes would split all season, if they rotate, if they're out of games, like they might be, do they start to play Jamal Agnew and Laquan Treadwell in the second half of some of these games? Do we have games where the top receivers route share as a percentage of dropbacks is 60%, which will happen sometimes on these types of teams, you know, just from my stealing signals experience and writing and looking at this stuff on a weekly basis, if they're getting blown out in a game, we might see that type of thing occasionally. So do you ever have the ability to depend on any of these guys? That's a big, big question mark. And then what is the ceiling if there, if any of them even does ascend, right? If Kirk is the clear number one, you know, even if he's playing out of the slot or whatever, but becomes the clear number one wide receiver target in terms of volume, in terms of production, is playing well, it fits with Lawrence well, all of those things. What's the real ceiling in an offense that's sort of similar to the Steelers? How many touchdowns are they going to score? All of that. The only guy, again, I finished this thought the same way you finished your last, that that I feel like the target share is certain for or, or feels comfortable for is ETN. I mean, that's the only guy that I can look at and go, I don't see a lot of outcomes on this roster where he isn't getting a good number of targets and a good, you know, good number of snaps and, uh, you know, hopefully production. We're betting on talent. We haven't seen it yet, but it is a, it's a, it's a team without any clear standouts at wide receiver tight end and some depth with like, vaguely intriguing names down to their fifth and sixth receiver spot into their second tight end spot. And I, yeah, I don't know how to play that. You mentioned ATN there and how he's the clear guy. And it is unfortunate that he's starting to rise and it looks like he may rise pretty swiftly. We've done a lot of content on the running back dead zone of the last several years, but one of the points we've been trying to make pretty consistently this year is Yes, you want to be aware of the trends. You want to be aware of the historical win rates in that range, but you also want to be evaluating specific players. And it's not necessarily a good thing for you as the drafter if ETN goes from the 4-5 turn up into the second round. I mean, he's up out of the dead zone now, but you've lost a ton of value in terms of what you would have been able to do with your team. When we have this situation where guys like ETN and Hall and Dobbins Cam Akers right now, even though I think he's a little bit more questionable in some ways, those guys, once they rise up to the top of the dead zone or out of the dead zone, it kind of takes them off your radar when they actually make compelling dead zone selections right now. That part of it is interesting. I don't know. I, I just want a lot of exposure to ETN and I hope it won't be that expensive because in round two, I think you've got to probably go in a different direction. The reports on him and the health and there were concerns because this is an injury that not everybody comes back from all the way but the reports that have been very enthusiastic recently uh, he's just going to get more and more expensive well you mentioned about james robinson there very true i think someone too not yet but as the season develops to perhaps pick up very inexpensively in dynasty but it's hard to see how he has the type of production as a redraft or best ball player to make a difference for you right now then I kind of have to close out our Jacksonville segment here with a little bit of a 
a jump from Blair Andrews. I was legitimately asking him at the end of our Superflex FFPC best ball tournament team. we gotten into, I think, the 19th round. And Marvin Jones still there, despite, again, as we've kind of mentioned, perhaps having the best profile to come through, or at least the second best behind Christian Kirk. And with the deep threat ability in best ball, you know, have some good games. I gave Blair three options for the selection, one of them being Jones. And he ranked his preferences for the pick to be one of the two guys, the other of the two guys. His third favorite option was to trade the pick, which obviously you can't do in a, a super flex best ball tournament. His third option was to pass on the pick. His fourth option was to forfeit the league. And his sixth option was to select Marvin Jones. So. <laughs> that seems like uh, an interesting set of options. I, I do want to say I, I, that, that's that's a great anecdote, but I we we can't also can't close without at least talking about Chenault a little bit. And I will say for everything that I said, if there is one player whose profile can still shine through, it has to be him. Like I think we know what everyone else is. Um, there's a, a, a sliver of a chance that we don't yet know what LaVisca Chenault is. Let's get those LaVisca Collegiate highlights going. <laughs> ben, this has been a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to talking with you more about your projections. We'll have the NFC version of the show. We're going to have some drafts coming up. We're getting to do a cool event with the Spike Week team will have that draft for you assuming that it works out we're still a little bit uncertain of exactly how it will go but we're excited about that so we have some cool shows coming up you're also going to have a trip to hawaii we're preparing some content in advance of that i'm excited for you there i wish i were going along that seems like the place to be but that'll do it for today's episode of stealing bananas i'm sean siegel with me as always is ben gretch make sure you follow him at yards per gretch Sign up for Stealing Signals. If you want to join us at Rotoviz, you can use the coupon code RVRadio2022 at checkout and get a 10% discount on a one-year subscription. We will have some underdog drafts for you in the near future. Those will be a lot of fun if you want to join us over the year. Use the coupon code Rotoviz, get 100% deposit match up to $100. And again, just so much appreciation for all that you guys have done, both here and subscribing to the YouTube form of the show that helps us so much even if you don't ever plan to watch one of those youtubes if you want to do just some tiny little thing for us you can go in and subscribe to that we are going to have some bonus shows for you over the next couple of weeks you'll get those when they release we will talk to you guys soon
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.